Welcome to a bonus episode of Skim This. Today, we're diving into a topic that's been on our minds for a while now, the She Session, aka how women have been impacted by the economic recession caused by the pandemic. A few weeks ago, we spoke to Vice President Kamala Harris about how the Biden administration plans to tackle the crisis. And we wanted to hear what our audience thought of the administration's plan. So we asked for your stories. Faith and Bergen were two of the skimmers who responded and joined us in a conversation with two experts. One of those experts was Catherine Edwards, an economist at the RAND Corporation, whose research focuses on employment and unemployment, financial decision-making, and labor markets, among other areas. You probably heard her on the show before. We were also joined by Sharita Ellens, the CEO of Women Employed, a Chicago-based organization that's dedicated to establishing equity for women in the workforce through affecting policy change and advocating for women at work. You'll hear from them in just a second. Before we get into our conversation, we just wanted to take a moment to say that everyone has their own story. And in no way does this conversation represent every or even a lot of the experiences that women have had during this pandemic. And at The Skim, we're not done telling this story. This is a conversation we want to keep going, and we want to keep hearing from all of you. At the end of this episode, we'll tell you how to do that. Now, let's get into this conversation. We're really lucky to be joined by two people who have been longtime skimmers, Bergen and Faith. And Bergen, I would love to have you introduce yourself to our audience and also kind of give a little color into how the last year has been for you in particular at work. My name is Bergen and I am a daycare owner, actually. I acquired a daycare business this year. COVID has been a little rough for my husband and I actually, I lost my job due to COVID. I was a vice president of a behavioral health company. Because of that, I kind of decided, let's just do something new where I could be um, in control of my own destiny. So acquired a daycare business. I've been in childcare, child services, behavioral services for my whole life. So it was always a dream and passion of mine. I will say I kind of have so many different perspectives because I was actually pregnant at the time that the COVID-19 outbreak happened. So I did have to make one of those difficult decisions of do I stay in my job as a pregnant woman where we don't really know that much about the impacts on pregnant women and COVID-19. And I, again, worked in a behavioral health company where we didn't shut down. We had residents, we had people that we needed to take care of every single day. So although I decided to stay in work, which didn't last very long. I don't know what I would have done if I luckily didn't have the family resources to be able to purchase the business that is now helping us survive through the pandemic. Childcare isn't going away. It can't go away. And it luckily, the business that we purchased has done a phenomenal job throughout the pandemic. But if I were to have to be searching for a job rather than purchasing my own business in order to be in control of my own destiny, I really don't know where I would be today. Faith, I'd love to hear from you next about how work has been for you for the past year. Sure. I had my son in November, had maternity leave, and then came back in February. And that was that was difficult, you know, for, for different reasons because I, you know, it was difficult to be separated from my son. But then in March, everything shut down and I started working from home and daycare shut down as well. And I had my son at home with me. So I'm a new mom. I'm learning how to, you know, take care of him also working. 
And then in April, as a precautionary measure, my firm put me on partial furlough. So I was working 32 hours a week. And then June, my son returned to daycare on a part-time basis. And July, I was offered to go back on to full-time, but due to just not wanting to be separated from my son as much and also concern for the safety at daycare, I decided to keep him home still for the most part. And I continued working at part-time 32 hours a week. Bergen, I'd like to thank you for what you do. I don't know how to express my gratitude for the work that you do and, and the people that watch my son. They're, you're wonderful. I can, I can attest to the fact that it is incredibly difficult to be able to watch a toddler while working. I would love to hear from Catherine and Sharita just how typical you think these experiences have been for women throughout this past year in particular. Hi, everyone. I'm Sharita Ellens, president and CEO at Women Employed. I would say that the stories that Bergen and and Faith just shared are very typical of what we've been hearing in this space. In addition to, you know, their particular scenarios, what we're also hearing are from the women who don't have the privilege of having jobs where they can work from home and they're making decisions around, you know, going to work or putting their families at risk, or not going to work and not being able to get paid and not having safety nets and not having access to paid leave or paid sick days or anything like that. So I think that these stories are why we continue to hear everyone refer to this period as a she session because of the stark disparities women are facing in terms of the impact it is having on them in the workplace, whether it means that they're leaving, staying, or being forced out. Howdy, my name is Katherine Ann Edwards, and I'm a labor economist at the Rand Corporation. And I'll add that hearing their experiences really demonstrates how hard it is for us to understand on, you know, kind of a national level, just how much women have had to give up. You know, you're laid off and we can see layoffs in data. You leave the labor force and we can try to measure that. But the types of small sacrifices, the, the I'm going to go part-time, I'm going to miss this opportunity, I'm going to not take this pay cut, and just you know, all of the small decisions that women have had to make in order to accommodate childcare, it's, it's really personal and it's really raw. And it's something that I think that economists miss And I think it's something that policymakers, as a result, often miss because we can't measure just how much someone has held themselves back in the workplace in order to accommodate their children. Before we go any further, let's take a step back. The challenges Bergen and Faith have experienced are part of a much larger pattern of women struggling economically during the pandemic. Women's participation in the labor force is now at a 33-year low, 2.3 million women that were working pre-pandemic aren't now. And mothers, especially those with young children, have been the most affected. Within certain industries like education, health, and retail, women are losing more jobs than men, sometimes at a substantially higher rate. The situation is even worse for women of color. The overall unemployment rate in the U.S. stood at 6.3% in January. For white women, it was actually a little lower, at 5.1%. But for Asian women, that number jumped to 7.9%. It was over 8% for Black women and almost 9% for Latinas. 
So that's a lot of bad news about the state of women at work, which could explain why the president has called the economic crisis facing women right now a national emergency, and why the administration is trying to address this crisis through legislation. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I would like to talk about how this is being addressed or not. We interviewed Vice President Kamala Harris to learn more about what the government's plans are for addressing the economic crisis, particularly for for women and for moms that's being caused by the pandemic. And, you know, her real focus was on the COVID relief bill that the White House has put forward. So it's the American Rescue Plan, and it's basically, it's about folks who are just trying to survive right now and helping them get through. So what does it do? For people who are most in need, $1,400 direct checks. What does it do? It says, hey, we need to have paid family leave for people. What does it do? It says, if you are a small business owner, we're going to give you relief so you can stay in business or even grow your business. Um, What do we say? We say, you know what? Minimum wage, $7.25 an hour means $15,000 a year. Two-thirds of minimum wage workers are women of color. Can't live off of that. We need to increase minimum wage. And it says, hey, we need to reopen the schools because our kids want to go back to school. Their parents want them to go back to school. The teachers want to teach. And their education, especially when we're talking about, you know, K through 12, each day they miss school is a pretty significant phase of their educational process. Sharita, there's a lot to get into in that soundbite. First, what do you make of this proposal, particularly as it affects women at work? And then second, is this putting out fires or is it trying to achieve a kind of long-term structural reform? This bill is not meant for long-term structural reform. This bill is meant to provide immediate relief to individuals and families that are struggling and then deal with the infrastructure issues that we have to tackle in order to get our economy back up and running. And so this stimulus plan is is signaling that that it has to be done in a big way. Like we can't nickel and dime this recovery. We have to go ahead, spend the money, put the things in place that's going to help us come back and come back in a meaningful way so that we can really begin recovery because we haven't even begun recovery yet. Catherine, this is obviously an immediate band-aid and structural change needs to happen. I'm curious if you could walk us through sort of the short-term, several months view, the five-year and the 15-year view of what needs to happen to sustain women and particularly women of color at work and make sure they're able to stay at work. So how how can we picture women working in, you know, I say five months, five years, 15 years, five months to get us through the pan- pandemic, five years probably to recover from the labor market that we're in right now. And then 15 years of a new, you know, this is what we want the components of the plan that Vice President Harris discussed I think, shed some light over where we have something to work with and what we need to work on. So the $1,400 stimulus checks, for example, are helpful for families. But one of the reasons why we need them is because our unemployment insurance system is designed in such a way it doesn't actually help all unemployed people. And so that's, you know, in, in five months, yes, get people checks now. In five years, you know, this program needs to have a massive redesign. 
And so that in 15 years, when we have another horrible recession, you know, we won't have to be doing this mix of checks to some people, unemployment benefits to other people, and we won't have to be filling in the holes. You know, the other example is paid family leave. Paid family leave is expensive to provide for employers. And that's why a lot of them don't do it. It's not a common benefit in the U.S. workplace. And what we found in this recession was that it was actually pretty hard to make employers do it. Ultimately, a paid family leave system needs its own infrastructure because what we're learning in this pandemic is that using employers as the infrastructure is not effective and it's not universal. So, you know, that that five-year plan and 15-year plan is we need universal paid family leave that workers pay for and not employers pay for. Sharita, from the stories that you hear and the work that you do, how would you categorize their immediate needs and their more long-term needs and what the government could be doing right now that it's not? The immediate needs is about safety, right? It's the, it's the basic needs that we all have. It's, can I, can I go to work and be safe? Am I in a safe environment? Is my employer providing the proper PPE? Things that many of us take for granted individuals that are in this low wage and these essential workers are faced with those issues every single day. Um, child care, having adequate access to child care, the, the things that are in the relief plan to, to put a moratorium on evictions is real because we're facing, you know, issues of people not being able to make their rent or mortgage payments right now. The reason why we're in this situation right now is because that there are way too many women Um, represented in the industries that were impacted the most by the pandemic to begin with through occupational segregation. So we have to deal with the fact that we continue to force women into these occupations that are low paid and offer low job quality by way of not having access to benefits where they can protect themselves and their families, such as paid sick time and paid leave. And in addition to that, we have to deal with how we're compensating individuals that are in these low-wage roles. Okay, side note. We wanted to jump out of the Zoom and just focus on this point for another second. Raising the national minimum wage is part of the American Rescue Plan that we talked about earlier, but it's also a policy item that's been talked about for decades. It's historically been a Democratic agenda item, but right now, as Dems try to pass this rescue plan, there's some disagreement within the party about whether raising the minimum wage should be included as part of COVID relief. More broadly, it's a policy item that a lot of people have strong opinions about. There's millions of American workers that have gone now nine years without a, actually 10 years, uh, without a, a pay increase. If we had doubled the minimum wage to $15, which is what Senator Sanders is calling for, across the country, you would see about 7 million lower wage jobs actually go away. You've got to put it in the context of what's going on in this country well, with that's a all... growing gap in wealth disparity. Heidi, that's all perception. If you can't tell, this is kind of a spicy debate, and it's been going on for a long time. Though, there are signs public opinion on the issue may be changing. A 2019 poll found that two-thirds of Americans support raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Just five years earlier, a roughly similar number of Americans wanted a minimum wage hike too, but to just over $10 an hour. So the goalposts here are changing pretty rapidly. And in this past election, we saw even more evidence that attitudes about the minimum wage are changing, as voters in Florida passed a $15 minimum wage, while also voting for President Trump. 
showing that even in a divided America, people might be coming around on the issue of raising the minimum wage. All right, now that you've heard some context, let's get back into the conversation. So on the point about the $15 minimum wage, Bergen, I know that you wrote to us out of concern for your your business plan, but also wanting to make sure that you're compensating the people who work for you. I'm curious just if you could say more on that and how and how you think about that. I would absolutely love to pay all my staff $15 or more because they are so valuable and they do an amazing job and they've sacrificed um, more than anyone throughout the pandemic to show up to work. But financially, as a business, you know, margins are already pretty thin. I don't know how I can raise wages without raising tuition, which then puts families in an even tougher situation because now they're having to pay more for childcare when there's already a shortage and they might have to go through the reconsideration process of, can I continue to afford this or do I need to stay home? So on a personal level, yes, but also I fear for changes in policy all the time because um, I worry that they're not thinking about these type of situations. Catherine, I'm curious how you think about the minimum wage proposal and how effective something like that would be to get women back to work. So do we think the minimum wage increasing is a good policy? Well, that's just one of the more controversial topics in economics, but but why don't we wade in? You know, the concern has always been, you know, exactly as Bergen expressed, if you make it harder to employ people, fewer people will be employed. However, over minimum wage increases that states have done, they have not found a very large, consistent negative employment effect, mostly because the thought is, is that you know, the increased cost is passed down to customers and, and then employers don't necessarily lay off workers. What I think is more important about the minimum wage for women and for women of color in particular is the tipped minimum wage. It is currently $2.13 an hour. Raising the minimum wage to $15 and leaving the tipped minimum wage where it is at $2 is not a, a cohesive policy. What would have the most impact for workers of color would be to end the tipped minimum wage. The second part is, will this get women back to work? You know, most of the evidence that we look at is that pretty much anything that you do that takes care of children between the hours of 8.30 and 5.30 that is free or incredibly affordable increases women's labor force participation. For the most part, the more you take care of kids in a high quality, affordable way, the more that we see a response in maternal labor supply. So the minimum wage can't solve that, right? Even if we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, if daycare is 45 minutes away in the opposite direction of a job, you know, I I, I can't go to work. So that's the policy that has to happen in tandem is we have to have comprehensive childcare and comprehensive really approach to schooling. This is arguably the policy that our economy needs right now in order to reincorporate women back into the workforce, because if they don't, our economy will be smaller or will recover more slowly. Sharita, what are you thinking? A couple things. I I think that, you know, when we talk about minimum wage, I think it's also important that it's not a light switch. We're not going to pass this policy and then tomorrow, now all of a sudden, everyone has to pay everyone $15 an hour. So in Illinois, we passed the minimum wage increase, but we have to 2025 to get to $15 an hour. So it's a gradual uptick to allow employers to put things in place to get there. And yes, of course, 
while we're looking at increasing um, minimum wage, we are absolutely looking at how that then impacts, you know, increasing reimbursement rates for childcare subsidies, increasing eligibility levels for social safety nets and things of that sort. So absolutely those things go hand in hand. And when we talk about how this will impact women, 84% of Black women in Illinois that have children are the primary breadwinners. In addition to that, we also know that majority of them are in low-wage roles. So if we increase their pay, we increase their ability to be able to provide for their families. And I think that that's really important for us to understand. Employers push back on that because they said, well, we can't afford to increase their wages. Everybody should be able to make a minimum wage when they go to work. It's it's not about what you can afford. It's what's right. We talked a lot about policies, and I think it's important for us to also look at workplace policies and workplace practices that make it an environment where people that have caretaking responsibilities, and rather that means that you're taking care of a child or you're taking care of a family member, have the flexibility to be able to do that. So I think employers have to kind of help lead some of this recovery and lead the way in creating best practices so that women can stay in and come back into the workplace. Faith, I'm curious if you have a reaction to what Sharita just said. I know that you wrote into us specifically saying you work in a very male-dominated industry where people are, you know, appreciative of kids on Zoom calls, but it might not be the norm as much. And I'm curious if you have kind of experienced that struggle of trying to speak up at work or get people to understand your situation more. You kind of hit hit a lot of uh, points that I've had to struggle with in the last year you hear a lot of dogs barking in the background, but not not a lot of kids. Or the people that have kids, they usually have a stay-at-home mom to help them out. Unfortunately, my husband is, is uh, not available to help me most of the time. So yeah, I... I I generally feel incredibly guilty about, you know, having my son babbling in the background or hearing a toy that's keeping him occupied at the time or hearing him crying. You know, I, I do feel the need to apologize to people that are on, on calls to make sure that, you know, they understand. But a lot of them, you know, they say they do. I, I don't know to the degree which they, they actually do. If anyone wants to jump in with anything that they've actually said at work, that's maybe worked for someone who might be in a similar situation where they feel like that their workplace policies need to change and they don't know how to kind of bridge that conversation or get it started. I would say that if you're not comfortable talking to your supervisor, if you don't have, you know, your natural places is, do you have a sponsor? Do you have a mentor? How close is your relationship with your supervisor? If none of those exist for you, if you have an employee resource group, it's one of the, the best places to go and begin to lobby for what you need. So as a group, you can then um, petition HR or whoever you need to petition to be able to bring in and normalize some of the practices that you need to make this adjustment. And then you need to understand, is this a temporary adjustment or is this something we just we need permanently in the workplace because this is just how work is going to be in the foreseeable future. 
Catherine, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts or what you might say to someone who is having to make tough choices right now. I can empathize with a choice not really feeling like one at all. I can empathize with the idea that it doesn't seem like you have any options and that, you know, people will say that you chose to left the workforce. It's not like that was really something that you took upon freely. But I, I think what I would stress to people is that so much of how we talk about parents and decisions like this is imbued with judgment. You know, it's so much of, you know, oh, you're a single mother. Well, then you should get married. Oh, like you, you're married and you're struggling. Well, maybe your husband doesn't do enough. I mean, we'd like to point to the personal failures of women in lieu of the policy failure that puts them into a corner. We do not have access to sick leave for workers in the United States. We do not have access to paid family leave for workers in the United States, and we do not have access to affordable childcare. So you cannot judge yourself for the failures of policy to create an infrastructure that supports you to actually make a choice. So you do right by yourself, you do right by your family, you know, get through the pandemic, but to the extent that you can, take the judgment and pressure off yourself for the choice you didn't have. Bergen and Faith, I want to give you the last word here. Is there anything else you want to say either to someone listening or who might be in your position? I just want to say thank you to the childcare workers who throughout the pandemic have sacrificed and showed up to work. We're a safe school. We've done the things that we need to do to provide care safely throughout the pandemic, but I, you know, not everyone has the resources that we do. So um, I just, I just can't express enough my thanks and gratitude to the industry and to the daycare workers who are still out there and businesses hustling and trying to get through this pandemic. Just it, know that you're not alone and that there are a lot of people out there that are are struggling. I just wanted to thank you all again. It's lovely to meet you guys. Bye all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Skim This. Like we said earlier, we want to hear your stories. To get in touch with us, check out our show notes. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Our weekly news episode will be back in your feed on Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.